This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Ethan Young, Schooled by Slate.com, The David Pakman Show, Moyers and Company, The Onion Radio News, The Young Turks, and Jim Hightower. And please remember to take notes. There will be a test on this material. In a mere five minutes, I hope to provide insightful comments about a variety of educational topics. I sincerely hope you disprove the research I've compiled. Here's the history of the Common Core. In 2009, the National Governors Association and the Council of Chief State School Officers partnered with Achieve Inc., a nonprofit that received millions of funding uh, from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Thus, the initiative seemed to spring from states when in reality it was contrived by an insular group of educational testing executives with only two academic content specialists. Neither specialist approved the final standards, and the English consultant Dr. Sandra Stotsky publicly stated she felt the standards left students with an empty skill set lacking literary knowledge. While educators and administrators were later included in the validation committee and feedback groups, they did not play a role in the actual drafting of the standards. The product is a, quote, rigorous preparation for career and college, yet many educators agree that rigorous is a buzzword. These standards aren't rigorous, just different, designed for an industrial model of school. Nevertheless, Common Core emerged. Keep in mind the specific standards were never voted upon by Congress, the Department of Education, state or local governments, yet their implementation was approved by 49 states and territories. The President essentially bribed states into implementation via Race to the Top, offering 4.35 billion taxpayer dollars to participating states, $500 million of which went to Tennessee. And much like No Child Left Behind, the program promises national testing in a one-size-fits-all education because, hey, it worked really well the first time. While I do admire some aspects of the core, such as fewer standards and an emphasis on application and writing, it's not going to fix our academic deficit. If nothing else, these standards are a glowing conflict of interest, and they lack the research they allegedly received. And most importantly, the standards illustrate a mistrust of teachers, something I believe this county has already felt for a while. I've been fortunate to have incredible educators that open my eyes to the joy of learning, and I love them like my family. I respect them entirely, which is why it frustrates me to review the team in Apex Evaluation Systems. These subjective anxiety producers do more to damage a teacher's self-esteem than you realize. Erroneous evaluation, erroneous evaluation coupled with strategic compensation presents a punitive model that, as a student, is like watching your teacher jump through flaming hoops to earn a score. Have you forgot the nature of a classroom? A teacher cannot be evaluated without his students. <clears throat> Excuse me. As a because as a craft, teaching is an interaction. Thus, how can you expect to gauge a teacher's success with no control for students' participation or interest? I stand before you because I care about education, but also because I, I want to support my teachers. And just as they fought for my academic achievement, so I want to fight for their ability to teach. This relationship is at the heart of instruction, yet there will never be a system which, by which it is accurately measured. But I want to take a step back. We can argue the details ad infinitum, yet I observe a much broader issue with education today. Standards-based education is ruining the way we teach and learn. Yes, I've already been told by legislators and administrators, Ethan, that's just the way things work. But why? I'm going to answer that question. It's bureaucratic convenience. It works with nuclear reactors. It works with business models. Why can't it work with students? I mean, how convenient calculating exactly who knows what and, and who needs what. I mean, why don't we just manufacture robots instead of students? They last longer, and they always do what they're told. 
But education is unlike every other bureaucratic institute in our government. The task of teaching is never quantifiable. If everything I learned in high school was a measurable objective, I haven't learned anything. I'd like to repeat that. If everything I learned in high school is a measurable objective, I have not learned anything. Creativity, appreciation, inquisitiveness, these are impossible to scale, but they're the purpose of education. Why our teachers teach, why I choose to learn. And today we find ourselves in a nation that produces workers. Everything is career and college preparation. Somewhere our founding fathers are turning in their graves, pleading, screaming, and trying to say to us that we teach to free minds. We teach to inspire. We teach to equip. The careers will come naturally. I know we're just one city in a huge system that excitedly embraces numbers. But ask any of these teachers, ask any of my peers, and ask yourselves, haven't we gone too far with data? I attended tonight's meetings to share my critiques, but as Benjamin Franklin quipped, any fool can criticize, condemn, and complain, and most fools do. <laughs> the problems I cite are very real, and I ask only that you hear them out, investigate them, and do not dismiss them as another fool's criticisms. I'll close with a quote of Jane L. Stanford that Dr. McIntyre shared in a recent speech. You have my entire confidence in your ability to do conscientious work to the very best advantage to the students, that they be considered paramount to all and everything else. We're capable of fixing education, and I commit myself to that task. But you cannot ignore me, my teachers, or the truth. We need change, but not Common Core, high-stakes evaluations, or more robots. Thank you. standardized testing fit into all of this? Because since No Child Left Behind became law in the United States a decade ago, we've been testing kids every single year in the core subjects. Do other nations do that? No, nobody tests, uh, does standardized tests like America. I'm trying to think of an analogy of another world in which, you know, you obsessively measure everything that's going wrong, but then don't really do much to change it. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's a strange approach to the problem. I was compared to getting a scale and getting on the scale in your house every day and feeling depressed about your weight gain, but not changing <laughs> the way you eat and not exercising. I think there's been some hyperbole about this. Like, we aren't the only country that uses tests. It's impossible to improve unless you can measure how you're doing. That said, I think it's certainly true that other countries have found ways to be much more selective in how often they test and much more deliberative about how smart the tests are. One thing you write about is the fact that in the U.S. our tests tend to be high stakes for schools and teachers, but not for kids. So in other words, schools and teachers are punished when kids score poorly, but kids tend to be advanced from grade to grade anyways, regardless of their scores. You actually say that the tests maybe should be higher stakes, more pressure for children. Yeah, I know. I feel like this is like totally countercultural, and I'm going to be attacked for saying this, but I really feel like we underestimate kids' ability to reckon with their performance and improve. 
you know, kids know when tests are a joke and when they have no consequences for their lives. And that, in addition to many, many other things we do, sends a signal to kids that school is not serious. And I think that is incredibly toxic in ways we, we can't begin to understand. So in all the high-performing countries in the world, there is a end-of-school test that is extremely challenging and serious. The end-of-school exam for kids in Finland lasts about 60 hours. I mean, it's wow. grueling and involves a lot of writing and a lot of hard work. It is important that we reckon with kids about their strengths and weaknesses and help them recover and improve before, you know, they're in college and failing out of math class or they can't get a decent job. We have a strange way in this country of really wanting to coddle and protect kids until they're 18 and then, you know, anything goes. You make the point in your book, which is also controversial, I think, that American schools are too focused on sports, on marching band, on drama club. And when I talk about this with people, sometimes they say, well, that's what makes our system so great. Our kids are yeah. so energetic, creative, and passionate. That's why you see great companies like Apple start in the United States. <laughs> Do you think that this is true? I mean, is marching band and theater what's making our schools great? Or is this sort of a, a myth? I do think that it's certainly true that some of the fun and holistic things that some of our schools do are really cool and enriching. So I'm not saying we shouldn't do any of that. I think it's important, though, to, to really look in a clear-eyed way at the signal you're sending to kids about the balance between those things. You know, many of our schools are spending two to four times per student the rate of what they spend to teach math per student. Wow. So should schools get rid of sports programs? No, I think schools should step it back, dial it back, and there are ways to do that. So there are schools in this country that have very deliberately, not very many of them, but, but some that have very deliberately said, okay, here's the deal. Because we feel like higher order thinking skills are really, really important and we, we want to prioritize academics, you cannot travel out of state for a tournament. Right? And there's plenty of kids to play in this county. So there are ways to slim down on this without losing it altogether. I want to go back to Poland for a second before we finish. Poland has pretty high child poverty. It's a nation that has a really complicated recent history, and yet their schools are improving faster than ours. What's your, what's your sense of why that is? I think Poland, like Finland and Korea, came into an really an existential crisis economically where they really had to double down on investing in their human capital in order to stay relevant as the world changed, as Europe changed around them. So in this case, it took the form of a pretty strong leader who partly by accident and partly on purpose pushed through a number of big reforms that had the effect of delaying that tracking that we were talking about into vocational and academic streams. And that maybe unintentionally really raised the expectations for everyone. But this is actually an old story. Every country that has delayed separating its kids this way has seen all kids' scores go up. This is, this is an interesting and thought-provoking model for the U.S., which actually tracks its kids much earlier uh, and much less obviously than most developed countries in the world. Well, let's talk about that because people say that we're in an education reform moment here in the United States of college for all, and there's this idea that tracking in America is over. But you're saying that's right. not true. When you really look at the research, what you see is that we separate our kids much earlier than most countries, 
And we do it in these kind of stealth ways. We do it through, like, gifted and talented programs. You know, that can start when you're, like, five or six, really young. And then one thing leads to the next. So if you're in the gifted program, then you have a direct ticket to the honors classes in seventh grade. And then from there, that's how you get into AP classes in high school. And on and on it goes to the point where many schools have, like, three or four tracks. And kids aren't even always aware of them or how one leads inexorably to the next. And so you're making the point in the book that if we want to improve our system overall, every kid has to have those experiences that the kids are getting now who are in gifted and honors and AP. Right. Every kid has to be exposed to the same higher level content. Definitely very challenging to do, to reach all those kids so that the advanced kids aren't bored and the kids who fall behind aren't forgotten. But this is what you see in the top-performing countries in the world, that the longer you keep kids together, provided you're able to differentiate and provide rigorous content for everyone, the better everyone seems to do. You want to make it stick together. We've been covering Louisiana schools for a long time, and Zach Coplin, who's the college student that is aggressively and correctly going after the voucher programs, which are allowing for state-funded Bible-based curriculums and, and so on and so forth, he has actually scoured a lot of the textbooks that are being used for teaching in Louisiana in some of these voucher schools. And the stuff that is being taught to Louisiana students in some of these schools is absolutely unbelievable. There's this new law which privatizes public education in Louisiana, and it essentially allows for a Bible-based curriculum to be taught, even in schools that are getting money from state taxpayers via these vouchers. And there are 119 participating schools. Most are Christian schools. And Zach Coplin has found out that at least 19 of those schools are teaching or championing creationist non-science, and they'll be collecting about $4 million in public founding, funding just from the first round of these voucher designations. Listen to some of the things that are being taught in these textbooks. The, the books are a Becca Book Curriculum. It's a Pensacola-based company and Bob Jones University Press textbook. Both of these teach these Bible-based facts in science class. Here's one, Lewis. Dinosaurs and humans probably hung out and lived at the same time. Okay. Dragons were probably real. God used the Trail of Tears to bring many Indians to Christ. And even then, I believe that by Indians, they're actually referring to Native Americans. But that, that's like a layer two analysis of why the, the textbook is absurd, Lewis. We're only focusing on layer one here. Africa needs religion. Slave masters were actually pretty nice guys. The KKK wasn't a bad organization. The Great Depression wasn't as bad as liberals made it sound. The Supreme Court enslaves fetuses. 
the Red Scare still isn't over, of course, referring to communism and Satan's hatred of communism. That's an interesting history class, Lewis. You're being taught that communism is still a, an active threat to the United States and that Satan really just doesn't like it. Mark Twain and Emily Dickinson weren't really anybody that we should look to for any kind of knowledge or we shouldn't look at what they wrote. What they wrote is not important to the literary history of the United States. Abstract algebra is just too complicated. Gay people have no more claim to special rights than do child molesters or rapists. And that uh, globalization is a precursor to the rapture. Poor kids, right? I mean, I understand that it could be easy to kind of get mad at everybody in the state, but the children are really the victims here, right? They're going to have a hard time coping once they enter the real world. And we wonder why so many other countries are just zooming ahead of the United States when it comes to science, math. And then the fascinating hypocrisy, Lewis, is on the one hand, we've got a bunch of right-wingers really angry that evil, dirty immigrants are sneaking across the border, sometimes legally, sometimes illegally. I think in both cases they don't really like it and taking our jobs. And at the same time, they want to teach kids stuff that makes them uh, uh, not unhirable, but certainly less attractive candidates. I don't think they're going to understand that internal conflict there. out of the planetarium and that evening I sat thinking about what you said in the show about you acknowledged the Big Bang and you and I remember that Hubble rewound the process mathematically correct me if I'm, I'm wrong and calculated that everything matter space energy even time itself actually had a beginning so it turns out that it was not Hubble although Hubble had the data that enabled the calculation the person who did that was a Belgian priest George Lemaitre, he's a, he's a priest, physicist, physicist priest, right. okay? What a cool thing to have on your <laughs> business card. You got, every, you got people coming and going with that. But uh, he calculated what the implications of Einstein's general relativity, which was the new theory of gravity, would be with Hubble's expanding universe. And he says the whole universe may have begun in a singular point in the past. And thus, the uh, Big Bang, as a phrase, was used pejoratively of this idea, but it stuck. Do you give people who make this case that that was the beginning and that there had to be something that provoked the beginning, do you give them an A, at least, for trying to reconcile faith and reason? Um, I don't think they're reconcilable. What do you mean? Well, well so let me say that differently. All efforts that have been invested by brilliant people of the past have failed at that exercise. They just fail. And so I don't, I, I don't, the track record is so poor 
that going forward, I have essentially zero confidence, near zero confidence, that there will be fruitful things to emerge from the effort to reconcile it. So, for example, if you, if you knew nothing about science and you read, say, the Bible, the Old Testament, which in Genesis is an account of nature. That's, that's what that is. And I said to you, give me your description of the natural world based only on this. You would say the world was created in six days and that stars are just little points of light, much lesser than the sun. And in fact, they can fall out of the sky, right? Because that's what happens during, during the um, revelation. One of the signs that yeah. the second coming is that the stars will fall out of the sky and land on Earth. So to even write that means you don't know what those things are. You have no concept of what the actual universe is. So everybody who tried to make proclamations about the physical universe based on Bible passages got the wrong answer. <laughs> so what happened was when science discovers things and you want to stay religious, or you want to continue to believe that the Bible is, is unerring, what you would do is, you would say, well, let me go back to the Bible and reinterpret it. Then you'd say things like, oh, they didn't really mean that literally, they meant that figuratively. So this whole sort of reinterpretation of the fig how figurative the poetic passages of the Bible are came after science showed that this is not how things unfolded. And so the educated religious people are perfectly fine with that. It's the fundamentalists who want to say that the Bible is the literally, literal truth of God that, and want to see the Bible as a science textbook who are knocking on the science doors of the schools trying to put that content in the science. Uh, enlightened religious people are not behaving that way. They're saying, yeah, science is cool, we're good with that, and use the Bible for, to get your spiritual enlightenment and your emotional fulfillment. I have known serious religious people, not fundamentalists, who were scared when Carl Sagan opened his series with the words, The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. That scared them, because they interpret that to mean then if this is it there's nothing else no god and no life after for for religious people many people say well god is within you or yeah. god there are ways that people have shaped this rather than god is an old gray bearded man in the clouds so if god is within you what i'm sure carl would say in you in your mind in your mind and we can measure the neurosynaptic firings when you have a religious experience we can tell you where that's happening, when it's happening, what you're feeling like at the time. So your mind, of course, is still within the cosmos. But do you have any sympathy for people who seem to feel, only feel safe in the vastness of the universe you describe in your show, if they can infer a personal God who makes it more hospitable to them, who cares for them? In this, uh, what we tell ourselves is a free country, which means you should have freedom of thought. It, I don't care what you think. I just don't. Go think whatever you want. Go ahead. Think that there's one gods, two gods, ten gods, or no gods. That is what it means to live in a free country. The problem arises is if you have a religious philosophy 
that is not based in objective realities that you then want to put in the science classroom. Then I'm going to stand there and say, no, I'm not going to allow you in the science classroom. I'm not telling you what to think. I'm just telling you in the science class, you're not doing science. This is not science. Keep it out. That's where I, that's when I stand up. Otherwise, go ahead. I'm not telling you how to think. I think you must realize that some people are going to go to your show at the planetarium and they're going to say, aha, those scientists have discovered God because God, dark matter, is what holds this universe together. So is that a question? (laughs) (laughs) It's a statement. You know. You know they're going to say that. So the history of discovery, particularly cosmic discovery, but discovery in general, scientific discovery, is one where at any given moment there's a frontier. And there tends to be an urge for people, especially religious people, to assert that across that boundary into the unknown lies the handiwork of God. This shows up a lot. Newton even said it. He had his laws of gravity and motion, and he was explaining the moon and the planet. He was there. He doesn't mention God for any of that. And then he gets to the limits of what his equations can calculate. So I don't, can't quite figure this out. Maybe God steps in and makes it right every now and then. That's, that's where he invoked God. And, and Ptolemy, he, he, he bet on the wrong horse, but he was a brilliant guy. He formulated the geocentric universe with Earth in the middle. This is where we got epicycles and all these, right. all this, the machinations of the heavens. It was still a mystery to him. He, he looked up and uttered the following words. I, when I trace at my pleasure the windings to and fro of the heavenly bodies. These are the planets going through retrograde and back. The mysteries of the earth. When I trace at my pleasure the windings to and fro of the heavenly bodies, I no longer touch earth with my feet. I stand in the presence of Zeus himself and take my fill of ambrosia. What he did was invoke, he didn't invoke Zeus to account for the rock that he's standing on or the air he's breathing. It was this point of mystery and in gets invoked God. This, over time, has been described by philosophers as the God of the gaps. Mm-hmm. If, if that's how you, if that's where you're going to put your God in this world, then God is an ever-receding pocket of scientific ignorance. If that's how you're going to invoke God. If God is the mystery of the universe. These mysteries, we're, t- we're tackling these mysteries one by one. If you're going to stay religious at the end of the conversation, God has to be more to you than just where science has yet to tread. So to the person who says, maybe dark matter is God, if the only reason why you're saying it's because it's a mystery, then get ready to have that undone.
One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions, so if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. It's the Onion Radio News. The National Science Foundation concludes science is hard. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The National Science Foundation's annual symposium wrapped up in Indianapolis today with 1,500 scientists reaching the conclusion that science is hard. NSF Chairman Louis Farian. This newly discovered law of difficulty holds true for all branches of science, especially my area, particle physics. Christ, particle physics is hard. The science is hard theorem has been gathering momentum since the 1997 publication of physicist Stephen Hawking's breakthrough paper titled Lorentz Variation and Gravitation is just about the hardest friggin' thing in the known universe. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News, online at theonion.com. To start out with, who are these smartest kids in the world? Well, it looks like there's a small, select group of countries that manage to educate virtually all their kids to relatively high levels of critical thinking and math, science, and reading. I focused in the book on Finland and South Korea and Poland, actually. Finland and South Korea because, you know, as you mentioned, they're often held up as sort of utopia of education and are very different places. Poland because... Despite relatively high levels of child poverty, they've radically improved their education results in the past 10 years. So we're going to get back to that question of child poverty. But just to start out with, who is collecting this data? Who is doing this measuring of which schools are best around the world? Well, I think you always want to use multiple measures, right? You don't want to get too fixated on one. Certainly, you can look at things that are relatively easy to measure, like high school graduation rates. Other things to look at would be, you know, college entrance and completion rates. One of the data sets that I use most, though, is from something called the PISA test, which is administered by the OECD in about 70 countries uh, to half a million kids, all of whom are the same age, age 15. And so this PISA test, the Program for International Student Assessment, so what's the bottom line here? How do American kids do compared to their peers around the world? American teenagers do pretty well in reading, actually, and it's important to remember this because it's easy to get hyperbolic about our performance and think everything's terrible. But our teenagers uh, rank about 12th in reading, and it's a perfectly respectable performance given the size and diversity of the country. 
we do much worse in math. Our, our 15-year-olds come in around 26, give or take. Science, similarly, we do not do as well as uh, the average for the developed world. Sometimes we hear that the U.S. has so much child poverty, as you mentioned, 20% of our kids are poor, that it's just not fair to compare our schools to those in more homogenous nations like Finland or South Korea. Do you think that there's merit to that argument? Totally. You can't even compare Texas to Vermont, let alone (laughs) the United States to Finland. I think it makes much more sense to look at our states as if they are little countries, Hmm. because in a way, that's how education is run, right? It's at the state and local level. That's how it's mostly funded. And so if you were to imagine that all of our states were countries and compare our kids' performance to countries around the world... The surprising thing is you still don't see a single state performing in the top, say, 15 countries in the world, even very small, very homogenous, relatively affluent states like, say, New Hampshire, that's just 96% white and has one of the highest median uh, incomes in the country. And you make this astounding statement in the book that really stuck with me, which is that the kids in Beverly Hills, Beverly Hills do worse than, on average, than the kids in Canada. Right. I know. It's shocking to me. If you look at the top quartile of most privileged kids in America and compare them to their privileged peers around the world, our kids are ranking about 18th in math by the time they're 15. So remember, these privileged kids that we have are way more privileged than the average privileged kids in other developed countries. So, Amanda, what other countries perform at about that level? We're actually tied with Ireland, Portugal, and Luxembourg for our performance in math. And who's number one in the world in math? Number one in the world in math has pretty consistently been, you know, toggling between Singapore, Korea, Finland, even Switzerland, and also Japan and Canada. Let's talk about Oklahoma because you met a young lady named Kim, and she traveled from a small town in Oklahoma to rural Finland to attend a year of high school there. And when you observed this transition for her, you came away really thinking that good teaching, good teachers was the main difference between the sort of average high school that she went to in Oklahoma and the much better one in Finland. Can you talk a little bit about what makes a Finnish teacher so special? It's pretty common in Finland to meet people who did not get into ed school, into teacher training college on their first attempt. Many of them eventually get in. Kind of like taking a bar exam in the United States. Exactly, or med school or things that, you know, we have really, we have really started to take much more seriously. So now this is important, I think, for two reasons. First of all, when you only admit the top 10 to 20 percent of your high school graduating class into the universities to train to become a teacher, you ensure that you are choosing people who have pretty strong educations in order to enter the profession. But I don't think that's even the main thing. I actually think when you make it really hard from day one to even begin to think about becoming a teacher, it sends a message about how serious you are as a state or a country about education. And kids really pick up on this more than I realized. So one of the American exchange students that I surveyed for this book said to me that her peers in Finland were well aware of how accomplished their teachers were. And it seemed to lend a level of respect and prestige to everything else in the school that 
she didn't see back home in the U.S. So not to pick on Oklahoma, but in the book you talk about the difference between Kim's math teacher back home in Oklahoma and her math teacher in Finland in terms of what they had done to get that job. So in the case of Kim's teacher in Finland, she spent five years studying first her subject and then education, and then the fifth year they spend in Finland, in most cases, student teaching. And she had, you know, a supervisor Unlike most many American student teachers, she had a really accomplished, high-performing teacher as her supervisor who was pretty direct with her about what she was doing right and wrong and helping her get better. And we know that that is you know, really important to any, any really challenging profession is, is to get feedback and get hands-on experience. So from the time that Kim's Finnish teacher decided she wanted to be a teacher to the time that she actually was given the keys to her own classroom was five full years. That's right. It's interesting because I guess this is sort of an easy analogy to make, but Teach for America takes five weeks between right, right. The, to do sort of, to do this, right. and it's not to pick on them, but our debate is in a totally different place here in the United States. Right, and what's amazing is that Teach for America teachers, on average, perform about as well as teachers who have gotten bachelor's and master's degrees in education. So imagine what you could do if you, <laughs> if you had the Teach for America candidates and a year of hands-on clinical training in addition to classroom training. And I totally agree with that from my experience as an education reporter. But I think usually what people say is, well, it would be great if it was only 10% of people who applied to teaching programs that got accepted. But how do we move from our system now, where our typical teacher candidates are just average students, to the one that you're talking about where they're spectacular academic superstars? We really haven't seen any state do what Finland did in the late 1960s in shutting down its teacher training colleges and reopening them in the most elite universities, which meant that you really had to be at the top of your class to even begin that process. Now, I mean, it sounds like, oh, how would we ever do that? But the truth is it's not... It's not actually that complicated, and I don't think it's as hard as some of the other reforms we've attempted by a long shot. So we know that we educate about twice as many teachers as we need in this country. So, you know, it's certainly not necessarily the case that you would have a teacher shortage if you did this. And what you might see over time, you might see a lot more people being interested in being teachers when it was really really prestigious to become one from day one. and So perhaps instead of 1,400 teachers' colleges training teachers, we'd have something like 700 or 500 colleges that you could go to to become a teacher, and they'd have higher admission standards. Exactly, right from the beginning. Now, the objection to that, I should say, is, you know, if you do that, you're going to end up discriminating against teacher candidates, and you might end up with a really white workforce and not a very diverse workforce. I think there's a couple things to point out there. The first is that we already have a not very diverse teaching force in this country for lots of reasons. And one of our problems is attracting men, right? And one of the ways you attract men is to uh, provide better compensation for teachers. And one of the ways you do that is through prestige, because there's different ways to be compensated in addition to money. Interesting. And I think the bottom line here is that people aspire to professions that are perceived as competitive. Yeah. I mean, people want to be part of something that is serious and that is competitive, as you say. And I think minorities want to be part of that, too. And I think men do, too.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Student loan defaults have surged to the highest uh, rate or level in nearly two decades. And that has a terrible impact on the economy that I don't think most people are really thinking about right now. Just to give you some numbers, and this is according to the Department of Education, one in ten recent borrowers defaulted on their federal student loans within the first two years, and that's the highest default rate since 1995. Now, that's not even taking into consideration the number of people or number of students um, that have been delinquent past 90 days. I mean, when you go to that, the number is much higher. They're just looking at people that haven't been able to pay in two years. Mm. So these are people that can't buy a car, can't buy a house. This is a huge population of people that are unable to give back to the economy and to society, financially speaking, because they have this massive amount of debt that they just cannot pay off and cannot get rid of under bankruptcy. Look, it's... Interesting, because I saw a billboard today about how education is the answer to, to, you know, for opportunity and hope and all that stuff. And that's something that I've been growing, uh, I was told as I was growing up, and I really firmly believe it, and I believe it to this day. But it, we've gotten to a point where uh, it's so expensive that it might not actually be ef- efficient. It might not be the effective way uh, to go about things. But then what is the answer? You see what I'm no, saying? The, the so we're stuck. We're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You don't get an education, you're screwed. You get an education, you're screwed because of how much it costs. Yeah, and, and the return of higher education is much lower now than it was back in the day. Uh, if you look at the graphic comparing um, you know, how much money college graduates make now compared to you know, back in the day before they were taking on these huge debts, median uh, weekly wages for holders of bachelor degrees have fallen 4.8% over the past 10 years alone. Weekly paychecks for all college degree holders over the age of 25 are down 3%. And one time we had this debate about under employment and underemployment is a real problem because people will get these very expensive degrees they'll go to graduate school they'll get a graduate degree and then when they graduate they can't find a job in their field and oftentimes they'll end up working for something that doesn't even need any type of education you just need a high school diploma so you're getting squeezed on both sides your loan uh, amount is going up significantly your debt is going up and your wages are going down so now, on the other hand, like I said, what choice do you have? You don't get an education, then you can't get the better jobs. So, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, the reality is everyone has a right to an education. Um, I believe that 100%. So if you make the decision to not be an entrepreneur, because some people do make it. It's a very tiny fraction of society that can make it without a college degree. They can go off and be an entrepreneur, create a business, and they'll do fine. But if someone wants to get an education, it should be accessible to them. There was a point in this country where it was accessible, and it did pay off. People did make a significant amount of money if they had an education. Now, that's not even a 
reality for so many people. And you have people that are depending on the sex industry or sugar daddies or sugar mamas to pay for their education. It's ridiculous that we're doing that in this so-called first world country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and education was supposed to be our way out. But now there is, in, for so many people, no way out. And then they're saddled with the debts for the rest of their life. They can't ever get rid of them. So they've taken the one thing that was supposed to be our bridge to a better future and made it into a trap for a lot of people. So it's, it's just uh, a really hard place that Americans have been put in. The whole point of education was an opportunity to do better, right? And that's why I, you know, I think Anna's definitely right. You know, how you structure it is a different question. But you can stop defunding it to start. How about that? Um, so I, I hear you on that. But my point is some degree of education that's affordable or free uh, so that you have an opportunity to contribute to society, to make society better, to make society more productive, etc. We've got to do that. Otherwise, we're burning our own future down. So it goes another lonely day. Saving time, but you're miles away. Your flowers drowning in some bitter tea. The sea and lost opportunity. Find your mirror, go and look inside. You see the talent you're always hide. Don't go kid yourself, well, not today. The satisfaction's not far away. Question. Is making higher education available to every American more important to our national interest than letting Wall Street profiteers make a few more billions of dollars each year? Answer. Of course. Yet, our political leaders, pushed by Wall Street lobbyists, have been making the opposite choice for years. As a result, banksters have loaded students down with a mountain of high-interest loans, rising from just over $2 billion a decade ago to nearly a trillion last year. Worse, the financiers, either banks or government lenders, have become the gatekeepers of advanced education, shutting out thousands of young people wanting to get ahead but not able to hurdle the formidable financial barrier. This is enormously costly to America and completely unnecessary. The smart choice, as we learned from the GI Bill after World War II, would be to make college and professional training free. Universal access to higher education, i.e. free access, produces a very high return on the public's investment while also producing a widely shared prosperity and a broadly educated citizenry. Of course, an upfront investment in a smarter, more productive, more democratic civilization is pricey. So where do we get the money to do what America needs? Get it from where it went. Wall Street's super-rich speculators are now making millions of super-fast robotic financial transactions per second, generating trillions of dollars a year for them, but producing nothing of real value for us while distorting and endangering markets. This is Jim Hightower saying, put a tiny tax on each of those automated gambles by speculators and more than enough money will come into the public coffers to free up higher ed for all. For information, check out United States Students Association at www.usstudents.org. Education should be free.
rich get richer cause the poor's uneducated Civil degradation, clip their wings and there's no way of elevating An ignorant mind could be devastated Especially if you think real life's on the television I speak my mind and I'm dedicated We need education, education. to raise a smart better nation And that's the truth, for God my witness There should be free healthcare and college tuition The possibilities are endless, endless. I never knew I was a chemist Put me in a college course made for beginners I might just come up with the cure for influenza We all keep learning until they rest our souls The brain's still working at a hundred years old So why I gotta pay for the knowledge you hold That's why the world's cold and the economy's gone Free education, free education What the people need is free education Up there, heavenly bodies collide Creating spectacular displays of fire and light but down here, the collision of science and religion in the rough and tumble of democracy can create its own fireworks. Which brings me to the controversy Neil deGrasse Tyson triggered in the blogosphere when he said this to me in one of our earlier episodes. The problem arises is if you have a religious philosophy that is not based in objective realities that you then want to put in the science classroom. Then I'm going to stand there and say, no, I'm not going to allow you in the science classroom. The proverbial alien from outer space must be scratching his bug-eyed head over that one. In 21st century America, why should our most noted astrophysicist have to defend the science classroom against the intrusion of religion? Two reasons. Over the past few years, the number of Americans who question the science of evolution has gone up. Look at this Gallup poll. 46% of the country embraces the notion that God created human beings pretty much in their present form at one time within the last 10,000 years. Perhaps less surprising, a Pew Research survey found that almost two-thirds of white evangelical Protestants, the bedrock of the Republican Party, reject altogether the idea that humans have evolved. So while acceptance of evolution has increased among Democrats to 67%, among Republicans it's fallen to 43%. That's a huge partisan divide. Something else is happening too, and no one is certain exactly why. Our Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan, calls it educational stagnation. Consider this. PISA tests, tests that measure critical thinking in science, math, and reading among high school students in different countries, show that our students aren't doing so well. In math, students in 33 other countries, including Ireland, Poland, Latvia, the United Kingdom, and the Czech Republic, did better than American students. In science, students in 24 countries, including Poland, Ireland, and the Czech Republic, were ahead of ours. And in reading, our best subject, kids in 21 countries outdid the Americans. The hard truth, says Secretary Duncan, is that the United States is not among the top performing comparable countries in any subject tested by PISA. That's bad news for our students and the country. All fodder for my last round with Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's the director of the Hayden Planetarium at New York's American Museum of Natural History. He's also the narrator of a mesmerizing new show at the Planetarium called Dark Universe. And this spring, he'll appear as the host of a remake of the classic PBS series Cosmos. You can see it on the National Geographic Channel and Fox TV. Welcome. Thank you. Let's talk politics for a moment. 
Go for it. All right. According to the Pew Research Center, back in 2009, a comfortable majority of Republicans accepted human evolution as a fact. But now a plurality rejects it. So I ask you, politics can trump science, can it? Well, in a free elective democracy, of course, you vote who you want on your school board. There is no provision in the Constitution for the government to establish what's taught in schools. That's all relegated to the states. Hence, we speak state to state about what's in their science textbook uh, versus another. And so that's the country we've all sort of bought into, if you will, or born into. I think it's a self-correcting phenomenon. Nobody wants to die, okay? So we all care about health. But above all else, among the Republicans I know, especially Republicans, nobody wants to die poor, okay? <laughs> so educated Republicans know the value of innovations in science and technology for the thriving of an economy and business and, and industry. They know this. If you put something that is not science in a science classroom, pass it off as science, then you are undermining an entire enterprise that was responsible for creating the wealth that we have come to take for granted in this country. So, we're already fading economically. If, this con if that trend continues, some Republicans are going to wake up and say, look guys, we've got to split these two. We have to. Otherwise, we will doom ourselves to poverty. And so I see it as a self I don't know when it'll happen, but they, they, they know. So what do you think's at stake? What, what's yeah. at stake for democracy? It, oh, no, it's not. The democracy will still be here. It's, it's a matter of we're just voting into office people who don't understand how, to make, how money gets generated. <laughs> In, you know, since the Industrial Revolution and before, we have known the value of innovation in science and technology and its impact on an economy. If that begins to go away, it's a different country. We'll still call ourselves America, but we won't lead the world economically. And that's a choice we are making as an elective democracy. How do you explain that no present-day scientist, present company accepted, is a household name the way Thomas Edison or Einstein were? What does that suggest to you? If I had to pick, I'd rather they were scientifically literate and didn't know the name of any scientist. Because <laughs> that matters much more. It matters much more that you understand what it means to pull oil out of the ground or the, the energy content of oil versus wind versus sun versus... It, that matters. It matters that you know that an asteroid has our name on it and how it might strike us and how we might deflect it. That, that matters. It matters what is happening to your health. This requires a, level, a base level of science literacy that I don't think we've achieved yet. You have not fully expressed your power as a voter until you have a scientific literacy in topics that matter for future political issues. And that scientific literacy spares you uh, tomfoolery from charlatans, right? Yes, exactly. A science literacy is, is an inoculation against... against charlatans who would exploit your ignorance of, of, of scientific law to, for, to and take your money from you or your opportunity from you. So the world does respond and, and follow known laws of physics and chemistry and biology. We understand that. So 
Uh, yeah, I mean, so Cosmos, when it comes out, again, we're not beating you over the head. I'm not saying here, learn this or else. It's an offering. It's like, it's like here it is, and here's why it matters. Here's why your life can be transformed just by having some understanding of this. Speaking of scientific literacy, I brought along some disturbing statistics. As you know, American students are performing poorly on international tests for math and science. In science, we came in just ahead of Russia and on a similar level as Italy, Latvia, and Portugal. In math, fewer than 9% of our students scored advanced compared to a whopping 55% in Shanghai, 40% in Singapore, and more than 16% in Canada. Yeah, welcome, welcome to the new world. Yeah. I mean, okay, there's that fact that you just read. Now look at the rising economies in the world, the rising and falling economies. It's going to track those numbers. It's the beginning of the end of what we thought of as America. As I grew up in an America that had as a priority leading the world in every metric you can assemble for yourself. So that's this is the writing on the wall. Now, how, why hasn't it happened sooner? Because a lot of these numbers have been around for decades. Yeah. I, I have a hypothesis. I didn't do the experiment, but it's not good enough to only be smart at something or to score high on an exam. At some point, you have to step away from the exam and say, I have a new thought that no one has had before. And it's not a thought that you told me to regurgitate on this exam that you just wrote, because it's a thought that no one has had before. And how do you get those thoughts? You get those in an in irreverent cultures. Possibly that has delayed our collapse because it is out of the environment of not regurgitating what someone else has learned in their lifetime that allows you to make a discovery that no one else has made before. You think there are too many tests? We give kids too many tests? I think we put too much emphasis on what the meaning of the test is. I, I test people. It's a way to find out what you know. But don't then say, if you don't know this, therefore the rest of your life is screwed. No. No, because go find people who are successful in this world. Find, you know, talk show hosts and comedians and novelists and attorneys and go get the politicians. Put them in a room and say, how many here got straight A's throughout school? None of them are going to raise their hands. By the way, throw in inventors. Throw in all these people. None of them are going to raise their hand. Okay, so uh, Bill Gates dropped out of college. Uh, 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 Michael Dell dropped out of college. Those people are not, the success of those people is not measured by how they performed on the exam that you wrote as professor. Because they're, they're thinking in ways that you have yet to think. Because they're inventing tomorrow. And the only way you can invent tomorrow is if you break out of the enclosure that the school system has provided for you by the exams written by people who are trained in another generation. There's something else too, isn't there? I mean, some people say this educational stagnation that we are experiencing, it's because we have one of the highest child poverty rates in the developed world. They point to the fact that high poverty schools in America posted dismal scores on these tests, whereas wealthy schools did very well. In fact, students in the wealthiest school scored so highly that if they were treated as a separate jurisdiction, they would have placed second only to Shanghai in science and reading 
and would have ranked sixth in the world in math. So inequality matters. Yes. That, by the way, my father was active in the civil rights movement in the 1960s, and a lot of my the cultural awareness and sensitivities as I'm floating in the universe were anchored by just that kind of awareness. The inequality, of, uh, the unequal distribution of wealth, but that's almost fundamental to a capitalist system. But you, what you don't want to have happen is to have unequal access. Okay, people will sort themselves out by who works harder and the rest of this. I got that. I even embrace that. But if everyone does not have equal access, you're not getting the best people. Your country will falter. And that's where inequality matters. Because you have disenfranchised a whole community of people that might have been contributing, but no, because they never even saw the light of day. So, the, the light of the intellectual day. So, yeah, that's bad. And it is not the sign of a healthy democracy. It's not even the sign of a healthy capitalist democracy. Being at the top of your game, intellectually, philosophically, politically, is not a forever thing. I, I read history. I look at countries that rise up and contribute mightily to uh, eradicating ignorance and to making discoveries about our place in the universe. And then by change of force, by change of vision, by, change of, by short-sighted leadership, the entire operation collapses. Look at Is Islam a thousand years ago. Baghdad was the center, the intellectual, it was the intellectual capital of the world. While Europe, they were disemboweling heretics. Okay? That's, where, that's why our numerals are called Arabic numerals. Because they pioneered the use of these numerals and invented algebra, itself an Arabic word, an algorithm. Two-thirds of the stars in the night sky have Arabic names. How does that happen? Because they had navigating devices, astrolabes. That culture of discovery ended and has not arisen since. I look at America, post-war 20th century America, and say, we were at the top of our game, investing in science and engineering and education. And yeah, we had our inequalities and we had our problems. But as, culturally as a nation, we had our vision statement. We were thinking about our future. We weren't thinking about the now. We were thinking about the tomorrow. That's what the World's Fair was. Inventing a tomorrow that doesn't yet exist today. When that's how you think about your country and run your country, you have policy that points in that direction. Innovative, inventive, creative policy that takes you from the present into the future. Without it, you live in the present and the rest of the world passes you by, you might as well physically be moving backwards. Because that's what you look like to the rest of the world. So as a scientist, I don't care who does the work next, if it's not America. I want to see good scientific results no matter where they're done. But as an American, I feel it. I feel the fading of our luster, the fading of our vision statement as a nation.
Hi, Jay. This is David in Austin, and you brought up a point that's uh, near and dear to my heart in organizing activism. Uh, you mentioned the word queer on your show and how it fits into the LGBTQIA spectrum. Uh, I love using this word, and it's, it's a difficult word because even in our community, it's uh, not fully understood or adopted yet. Um, but I wanted to define it a little bit for you beyond the just an extra letter in that series. To me, it's and to a lot of queer theorists and activists, it's a it's an umbrella term that encompasses all of those things. Uh, especially to me, the A part is important because our uh, allies uh, come out and work with us. Um, and I, I've seen discussions as to whether these allies are sufficiently queer to participate in, say, a fundraiser or event. And that's always bothered me because to me, somebody who may be straight but is willing to put their face and their voice on the line for their gay friends or trans community, I consider them to be more queer than somebody who is in the closet uh, but because they're, they're willing to step forward. So thanks a lot. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is uh, Colin from Nebraska. And just got done listening to uh, your Reproductive Rights podcast there. And uh, you've done a couple of these. And I've got to say, a little disappointed um, in the same way I'm disappointed when I hear these kinds of discussions from more of a uh, conservative right perspective. And the reason I'm disappointed is, despite the fact that both sides tend to use these terms choice and life, that really has uh, nothing to do with it or, or little to do with it. Where the two sides tend to diverge is that they disagree on the concept of personhood. In other words, at what point between conception and birth, this thing, depending on you want to call it embryo, zygote, fetus, uh, age, uh, acquires uh, full ethical status in a way that we as adults would regard one another or would regard an infant. And I think what's difficult here is you listen to all the pieces that you uh, put there. All of these folks proceed on the assumption that that uh, being, at least up until the first trimester, in some cases less, uh, or more, I should say, is uh, not a person. And at that point, everything, uh, the words of choice and uh, rights and all the rest of it makes a great deal of sense. In fact, it's almost required. If we don't have personhood, this would be much like elective surgery, and it would be the, the, the infamous nanny state that would step in to um, prevent someone from making a decision uh, that regards only themselves. On the other hand, if you adopt the assumption of the folks or believe on the other side that you have um, acts, if you want to call it that, a cheap personhood, say, conception, because you have, uh, say, the full genetic ingredients or ultimately a human being, then actually, if you take a look at their arguments, they're not only logically reasonable, uh, you'd say they're logically required. Uh, if you are truly asserting that an embryo is the ethical equivalent of an infant, it's absurd to uh, talk about choice uh, any more than a mother has a choice to uh, kill uh, an infant or a toddler there. And so all of these uh, you know, clips to talk about you know, the logical inconsistency of someone wanting a 
Danny stayed in the vagina, etc. It's a ridiculous argument if you're adopting the assumption of the other side any more than it would be ridiculous to, um, you know, accuse our criminal justice system of being a nanny state for stepping in to prevent child abuse. My point is, is that those two very different uh, fundamental belief systems about the personhood issue is really what uh, determines a person's position on this issue, with very few exceptions. And to not hear more focus on that issue of personhood, what qualities uh, are person, uh, this personhood consists of, the medical science, science does not provide an answer to that. That's ultimately an ethical, a philosophical conclusion that we reach. And so seldom do you ever hear that aspect of this debate fleshed out on either the left or the right. And um, it doesn't necessarily take us any further towards a resolution, but at least it makes us honest about uh, our use of language and um, what the fundamental disagreement is. So hoping that in the future uh, we have some more focus on reproductive rights, maybe we can find some commentators out there who are willing to explore this key aspect of it, because in my view, that's really where the action is. So thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So a quick reminder that we are up for a Shorty Award. That is an award for the work we've been doing on social media. And so when I say we, what I mean is Katie Klebusik, who does all of the social media for the show. Uh, And she's been doing a great job and deserves any kind of award or accolades uh, she can get. So help us out by going to either Shorty Awards dot com slash best of left or of course there is a link to the awards right at best of the at the top of the page you can't miss it it takes like three and a half seconds to nominate us and it'll be very much appreciated secondly today i want to respond on the question of personhood and why that isn't talked about more in the reproductive rights uh, you know debate and discussion and I can either agree with the caller's assertion or at least admit that it is nowhere near uh, you know, a crazy perspective to have to say that the idea of personhood is sort of the fundamental philosophical uh, split between the two groups. But where I completely disagree with the caller is when he says that that area of the debate is where the action is. Uh, you know, to me, action would imply you know, movement or change of some sort. And as he laid out, there is no provable correct answer. It's a totally philosophical question that everyone sort of just needs to answer on their own. So to have a debate about it when no one seems anywhere close to changing their mind anytime soon really misses the point of the idea of, you know, (laughs) there being action on something. So I think that it actually makes a lot of sense that not many people talk about it. If, if anyone did, I would happily play it on the show, but you know, it really doesn't get talked about much. And I think that it makes sense that it doesn't get talked about much because it is not something where there is any movement to discuss. Now, the other thing I want to mention though, is that, you know, we refer to this entire discussion as reproductive rights because it covers more than just abortion. You know, the caller laid out the two sides as if it was simply a discussion about abortion and personhood and how those ideas relate to each other. But as the, you know, unfortunately, what seems to be the majority of people on the anti-choice side of the discussion show themselves over and over again 
to not only be against abortion but also be against sex education and birth control, things that could actually reduce abortions in the country, which is an amazing sort of disconnect. And you know, so I am a big fan of understanding my philosophical opponent's reasoning and being totally fair to their beliefs. But in this particular discussion, when they reveal themselves over and over again to be concerned with controlling far more aspects of people's private sex lives than just the very specific issue of abortion, it muddies the waters in a way that makes it impossible to ignore and to then only focus on the fundamental philosophical division over personhood as the caller was you know, trying to say should be more in the discussion. And, you know, I mean, if there was a pro-life group out there fighting for universal sex education and easy access to birth control, then I would love to hear more about them because people like that could actually, you know, as crazy as it sounds, I think they could actually form a powerful partnership with those in the pro-choice movement to actually reduce abortions, to actually do the thing that they want to have happen while actually also increasing the overall wellness of those who would benefit from those programs. So until the anti-choice movement actually decides to focus on abortion rather than spreading itself far and wide to all aspects of people's private sex lives, then I think it's incredibly appropriate to point out that they are essentially trying to police people's bodies in a way that goes far beyond the idea of the concept of personhood for an unborn fetus. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, uh, nominating us for the Shorty Awards, donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on our award-nominated Facebook and Twitter pages. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained